And let's take our Bibles. We will turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. You know, you often hear people say, man, it's bad. This is the worst it's ever been. It's just not going to get any better. And we talk about moral decline, and we talk about the way people behave, and the decisions that they make, the interactions that we find. And we need to understand this. The Bible talks about the fact that societal spiral away from God is something that will happen in the last days. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. So that's something that we should prepare ourselves for. It's a fact. It's prophecy being fulfilled. But the question is this, what are the last days? The last days really comprise the time that started with the church and will conclude when the church is raptured. So really what it's saying is this, from the time that the church began in the first century until the time God brings the church out of the world, these last days are going to see terrible times throughout. And really when you look at scripture, isn't that what we see and look at history? Isn't that what we see? In the scripture, Paul talks about false doctrine, bad behavior, all of those things. When we read church history, we certainly see bad behavior, and we certainly see false teaching. And today, we still see the same thing, bad behavior, false teaching. Why? Because within the heart of man, there is an old nature and sin that spans the generations, that's always there. And we have to contend with it. And rather than looking out and saying, wow, look at how bad everyone is, what I think we're encouraged to do by this text is to look at ourselves and make sure that we don't behave like the rest of them. To make sure that we don't jump on the bandwagon of bad behavior and that we live as we should. The text that we'll be looking into today describes society, but it also describes for us the antithesis of what the church of God should be like. And so rather than just looking on the outside and saying, yeah, those people out there are really messed up, let's look to our own hearts and make sure that we aren't counted among them in our attitudes, and in our behaviors. Now, as we come to this text, we find that the Word of God tells us the last days will bring terrible times. There we go. Misfired on a couple on that. Now, let's think about this. The last days are going to bring terrible times, and then we see a list of characteristics that describes how people will love the wrong things. And this begins in the second verse. Verse 2 begins by saying, people will be lovers of themselves. Now, when we look at our society, we're told that being a lover of yourself is a good thing. As a matter of fact, our society's messed up because people don't love themselves enough, right? We're told that all of the time. Let me ask you this. Give me a chapter and verse on that. 
Where does the scripture say that we are messed up because we don't love ourselves enough? The whole idea of self-image has become a pep talk where we say to ourselves, I'm okay. But then we look at ourselves and we say, but I'm really not okay. And we're told that we're just to love ourselves a little bit more, and if we really love ourselves a little bit more, then everything will fall into place. And that's not what's taught in Scripture. You know what the Scripture teaches? That we're to love God. And when I love God, then I have a perspective on God, but I also begin to get a perspective on others, and I begin to love them and reach out to them. And I even have a perspective on myself. I start to see my value in my connection and my relationship with God. If all I do is talk myself up and say, I love me, that's not going to lead me toward a healthy life. It's going to lead me to the place to where I become self-absorbed and all I think about is me. And isn't that what we see in our society? More and more people buy into the concept that I need to love me just a little bit more. And when I finally get to the place of complete self-love, everything's good. Not scriptural. And the scripture talks about how people will be lovers of themselves, not in a positive light, but in a negative light. They become people who are self-absorbed, selfish, proud, all of the things that we're going to look into. Now, additionally, look at what else we find in that second verse. In addition to being lovers of themselves, the scripture says they will be lovers of money. Now, here the scripture is talking about the minefield that we get into when we become materialistic. We live in a materialistic world, don't we? We identify ourselves by what we own or what we'd like to own or what we charge and don't own the bank owns, but we sort of manage it. We all define ourselves in those terms, right? It's a trap that sucks us in. When I start to love things and money and what money can buy in an unhealthy way, I'm going down the track of falling in with those who are in the terrible times. I'm hitching my wagon to theirs, and that's wrong. In fact, what Scripture says very clearly is this. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, the Bible lays it out pretty clearly, doesn't it? I can't be a person who is committed and emotionally attached to materialism. If I find my jollies by going out and shopping when I feel down or when I feel empty, I'm buying into what the rest of the world says. And I'm becoming a lover of material things. I'm seeking for those material things to replace the emptiness that I feel in my spirit and in my heart. And God doesn't want us to behave that way. God wants us to love him and not money. Now, we've seen that people will be materialistic. We've seen that people will have self-love. And really, when you have those two things, it leads to this third thing. People will be boastful. Think with me for a moment about what it means to boast. Boasting is pointing out to other people what you have 
It's saying to other people, I have this, and I've done this, and I, 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 I. It's pointing all of the attention back on me, right? That's what boasting does, and that comes from self-love and materialism. If I identify myself by what I own and what I have, guess what? I'm going to be a person who will let people know what I own, what I have, what I am, what I've done, and that is what boasting is. And boasting, in essence, is coming to the place to where I am saying to other people, value comes from what you have, what you do, what you've earned. You're a self-made man. What I'm doing really is usurping God's glory as I boast. Now I want you to think about what that means. Boasting is not recognizing God. Boasting is only recognizing self. And to give us perspective, look at what the scripture says. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Boasting ceases to recognize that God brings what we have into our life. We take credit that we're not due. And that comes from self-love and a love of money. It usurps God's glory. And the boasting makes us proud. Pride is at the core of self-love, love of money, the boastfulness, all of that. Because we look at ourselves and we say, I deserve it. We look at ourselves and we say, all of this should be about me because I'm so wonderful. Pride is something that can draw us away from God, focus on self, and also cause us to be selfish with others. That's why God hates it so much. Pride is a perspective loser, not a perspective builder. And we will be confused, and we will worship the wrong things, and we will live the wrong way if we're driven by pride. Notice the next description, people will be abusive. Now, the word that is translated abusive in the original language, it means a blasphemer, and it's someone who speaks evil of others. In other words, I'm going to trash other people when I live in the manner that's described so far. Have you ever met that person that just continually criticizes everything? Everything that they come into contact, there's something wrong with it. It's just not up to their standard. And it doesn't matter how hard somebody tries. It doesn't matter what they try to do to please this person. They'll find something wrong. They'll look at the donut and see nothing but the hole. And they're frustrating to be around, aren't they? They are abusive to other people because that's the way they control other people. They say they're putting them in their place from their perspective. And their place is anywhere beneath them. God does not want that kind of behavior out of us. We need to kind of do a check of ourselves. Am I abusive? And what I say to other people, to my wife, to my kids, to my coworkers, do I affirm other people or do I speak evil against them? God does not want us to be abusive people. 
Now, look at the next one that's mentioned. After it talks about being abusive, it then mentions being disobedient to their parents. Now, some of us are looking at it and saying, well, you know, man, I'm, a, I'm 50 years old. Do I still need to be obedient to my parents? I mean, come on, what are we talking about? Here's the idea. This passage of Scripture is talking about a refusal to respond to authority. It begins when you're young, and some people never grow out of it. Let me tell you something. If you're disobedient to your parents when you're younger, you will probably build a mindset that I don't have to follow the rules or respond to authority when I'm older. And really, that whole concept that authority is bad, all authority is bad, is spurred and fueled by selfishness. Because basically what we're saying is, I want to have my own way. I want to do my own thing. And nobody's going to tell me what I can't do because I'm important enough that the rules don't apply to me. That's the idea. God does not want us to have that kind of attitude, that outlook that says, I'm above the rules, I'm above the law. Now, we've seen thus far that people will love the wrong things. But then as we move into the rest of the second verse, on through the fourth verse, what we find is this. People are also going to loathe the wrong things. Sorry for the loathe. I had to pick an L word, you know? I got this little thing where everything's got to start with the same letter. But to loathe something means you hate it with the very fiber of your being. And really, this is communicated by a series of words that in the original language all begin with the letter A. And what happens in Greek is this. If you have a concept and you stick an A in front of it, that's like the word not in front of it. So it is atypical. We do that in English. It means it's not typical. Atheist, someone who does not believe in God. So what we have here in this third chapter are a series of things that are starting to be mentioned right after disobedient to parents that are a-grateful or ungrateful. Uh, that begins this list. Now, when you think about what it means to be ungrateful, have you ever met somebody who just has absolutely no gratitude? You go out of their way, your way to do something for them. And you're not looking for thanks necessarily, but when they complain and say it's just not good enough, that's hard to swallow, isn't it? Being ungrateful toward other people is bad enough, but sometimes and most times people are ungrateful with God. If God puts us into circumstances and has made us the way that we're made, rather than looking and saying, these are the things that I'm grateful for, and all we look at it and say is, wow, this didn't work out very good at all. This is terrible. This is awful. We're being ungrateful. God wants us to be grateful people because it acknowledges that he is the one who is directing our lives, and he's doing a good job of it. Being ungrateful is being selfish. And it's saying to God, you're not doing a good job at all. And you know, being ungrateful 
is a trap that we get caught in that won't let us go. The more ungrateful I am, the more ungrateful I become. And isn't it interesting that if I even hang around other people that are ungrateful, you know what? It rubs off on me because their critical complaining spirit will be embraced by that part of me that gravitates toward an ungrateful attitude. God does not want us to function in that way. And that's why it's mentioned in this list of things that are attendant with the terrible times. After ungrateful, he goes on to say unholy. Now, to be holy means that I'm set apart unto God. So to be unholy means I am set apart away from God. I want nothing to do with Him. I'll live my own life the way I want to. In other words, I'll disregard God in every facet of my life. Now, we see this in the world, don't we? In fact, even in our own country, there's an increasing effort to exclude God from as much of public life as we possibly can. But you know, sometimes, even as Christians, we can fall into that, where we sort of compartmentalize our life. God, I'll keep these, li these areas of my life, but, but, but this area of my life, well, you know, you can have that. But these, I really want to hang on to. And so the spiritual things, well, those are holy. The secular things, eh, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with my spiritual life. I'll just do what I want to do. Living unholy means this. You, you can't pick and choose the areas of holiness that you'll embrace. You can't look and say, this part of my life will be holy, but this part of my life will be unholy. It's kind of an all or none proposition. And that's something we need to recognize. We can't straddle the fence when it comes to holiness. Holiness means I wholeheartedly turn my life over to God and he will superintend every aspect of my life. I will work as a Christian in the workplace. I will live as a Christian in the home. I will function as a Christian. I am holy. And to be otherwise is to be unholy. So we need to understand that. And then look at verse 3. Without love. Now, when we look in the original language, the word actually means without natural affection. And what this means is this. We systematically blow up the relationships that are around us. Those relationships that should have a natural affection in them, we write off because they don't serve our purpose. Let me tell you, as a pastor, I have seen some people whose relationships are disasters. They don't have a friend. They are dysfunctional as far as their relationships with their family. There isn't a healthy relationship in their life. And you know what they say to me when there isn't a single healthy relationship in their life? What's wrong with everybody? Hello? What's the common denominator? You. You see, as a child of God, we should be loving building those relationships, not systematically blowing them up. And if we look and we're blowing up relationship after relationship, we need to stop looking everywhere else and kind of look at ourselves and say, what's wrong with this picture? What do I need to do 
to change this about me. An unloving person is a selfish person. And they blow up their relationships because people can't tolerate their outlook, their behavior. And so we need to steer away from that. And then unforgiving. Now, I really love the word in the original language that's translated unforgiving here in the NIV. You know what it means literally? It means a covenant breaker, a promise breaker. In other words, these are people who will promise to do things and then walk away. They won't be people of integrity who give their word and keep their word. And what we need to understand is this. God places a high premium on people following through with their promises. When we promise to do something, we need to stay the course and stick with that promise. We need to be people who don't constantly break our word and break the commitments that we've made. Look at the next statement. In addition to being unforgiving, they are slanderous. Now, this is translated a couple of different ways in other versions. For instance, in the New American Standard, it's translated false accusers. And uh, in, in the King James, it's translated malicious gossips. What we find here is that these are people who use their words to manipulate and to harm other people. Now, thankfully, that doesn't describe the human race, right? We see it all the time. And we even see it in the dynamics of family. You know, a lot of times a family becomes so educated as to the hot buttons for another person. They can use that as ammunition, and they often do. We find that our society as a whole has become less courteous, hasn't it? As a whole, our society is rather rude. Man, I was standing in the service station behind this girl, and she was a beautiful girl. She was very nicely dressed, and she looked like she was just as sweet as she could be, and the language coming out of her mouth. I worked construction, and she would have embarrassed a lot of the construction workers that I worked with. And I was just standing there aghast. I'd heard everything she had said, but my goodness, not so, such close proximity, you know, with, with other things that are inappropriate to say. There was a rudeness. And we find rudeness in the way that athletes trash talk. We find rudeness in the way people interact with one another. We won't even talk about driving, but all of those things bring about this rudeness and this slanderous behavior. Look at the next statement, without self-control. Now, the idea here is having no restraint of any kind. In other words, anything goes. I'll just go out and nobody's to put any conventions or restrictions on me. Just let me live the way I want. And that brings us to our next one, brutal. And brutal, as it is translated in this particular passage, carries with, or rash, carries with it the idea of untamed. The idea that, that, that we are people who just don't want any rules, any convention. Let me live the way that I want to. Look as the list continues, though. In addition to being brutal, they are not lovers of good. Now, the idea here is when they look at something 
and they have the opportunity to do good, they will choose to do bad every time. You ever met people like that? They could have equal results between doing something good and doing something bad, and they'll choose bad every time. This is the direction our society will move in. And then treacherous. Treacherous has the idea that they will turn on anyone when it suits them to do so. As a matter of fact, the original language carries with it the idea of a betrayer. There's no loyalty. Boy, do we see that. Then the word rash, and rash carries with it reckless. In other words, I'm just thinking about the moment. I'm going to do my own thing and hang the consequences. Don't worry about what happens to me tomorrow. I'm going to do it right now and see what happens. A lot of people who are thinking in the moment, not thinking about consequences, either close or far-reaching. And then they are mentioned as those who are conceited. Those who, again, are just continually racked by pride. They are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now that brings us to our next point. What we're going to see in the last time is this. People are going to live as religious hedonists. Now what do I mean by a religious hedonist? A hedonist is someone basically with the philosophy, if it feels good, do it. That's what a hedonist is. I will make any decision that I want, and you know what? If it feels good for me to do it, I'm off to the races. And I want you to look at how this is coupled in this verse with the outlook toward religious things. They are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They don't love God first. If, if it brings them pleasure, they're committed to it. And then verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power. You know, there are a lot of people in this world who will talk a religious game. I'm a follower of God. I read the Bible. I'm concerned about my spiritual life. But none of their decisions are remotely reflective of that. Given the opportunity to honor God and express their love for Him through obedience, they will choose to go in a different direction, the direction of their own pleasure every time. That's a hedonistic lifestyle. And what I love about this text is this. They have a form of godliness. In other words, there's this outward case where they will have some sort of religious structure that they function within, perhaps to appease their conscience, perhaps so they won't be judged too harshly by society. But you know what? The outward trappings of our life mean nothing if there isn't a life to back it up that says, I follow through with what I believe. There are religious hedonists in all churches. The people that will show up for Sunday, perhaps even a Bible study or two, but the rest of the week, man, I do what I want to do. And God doesn't enter the equation. And there are religious hedonists outside the church in the sense that they build their own religion. They have a form of godliness where they say, 
I will worship this, this is my God, and they make a religion that suits themselves, but the truth isn't anywhere near them. As a matter of fact, flip over a page if you need to to get to the fourth chapter. And we find that in the third verse of the fourth chapter, this attitude is described. It says, men, the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine instead to suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want. That's what it means to love pleasure rather than to love God. And I see this all the time. Somebody will come to me and they'll ask me what the Bible says about something. And you know what? I'll tell them. The Bible says this. You know what they do? They're off to the next church or next pastor until they find one that says what they want to hear. And then once they find a guy, wow, this is the greatest church in the whole world. This is where I'm going. The Bible tells us what is right, what is wrong, not a man. And we need to understand that we need to be lovers of God, not lovers of our own pleasure or what? We will be part and parcel of the society that moves away from God. So that brings us to our next point. The leaders of this movement away from God, they all have some defining characteristics. And the first characteristic is found in verse 6. They lead the vulnerable astray. Now, ladies, <laughs> I know this is one that if you read it, Without the context, it looks like it's being mean toward women. Look at what it says. They are the kinds who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Now, let me assure you, this is not saying that all women are weak-willed, because if it were, it wouldn't be true. I know a lot of women who aren't weak-willed, okay? And that's part of their beauty. They have a solid will that honors God, and sometimes they have solid wills that don't honor God, but they have wills, all right? Just like all of us. But here's what we need to recognize. What Paul was talking about was a specific instance that was happening at Ephesus. Apparently, there was a group of women in the church at Ephesus who were not following the authority of the apostles and who were pursuing their own pleasures and who were moving away from God. And so what the Word of God is talking about as an example for Timothy is that very thing. You know what's more important as we look at this? Rather than looking at the gender, I think we have to look at the circumstances. So let's look at the circumstances. These are people who are, first of all, weak-willed. Now, what that means is this. There's not an endurance or a stick to itness. They're wishy-washy. When somebody comes in and says something, they'll see both sides and pick neither because they're just wishy-washy. But I want you to look at the characteristics of their lives that probably makes them wishy-washy. Look at what the scripture goes on to say. They are loaded down with sins, and they are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. You know what the scripture is talking about? The fact that they are loaded down with sin carries with it 
the idea that they are not leading obedient lives. These are people who are already choosing pleasure over God. The fact that they are loaded down by sins demonstrates this. So what the problem that, that, that existed here really was, was disobedient people who were not biblically astute because they weren't really connected with God. You know, I had a friend, and unfortunately he didn't pay attention to what was written in the front of his Bible, but his mom wrote in the front of his Bible, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And he chose the latter, unfortunately. He chose to live a pretty independent, uh, pretty sinful life. And as a result, he fell into greater and greater sin and turned away from the things of God altogether. A life that is loaded down with sin, a life that chooses pleasure over a passion for God, is a life that is just ripe for the picking by false teachers. So we need to understand that false teachers are more than willing to lead other people astray. And look at verse 7 to describe these people even more. It says they're always learning but nev never able to acknowledge the truth. You know what that's saying? They can accumulate Bible knowledge. They can accumulate all of the things to say that are right and proper and sound very Christianese, but they never acknowledge the truth by their lifestyle. Don't we see that? There are many people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, and they even pick up quite a bit when they come and they enter a fellowship of other Christians. I mean, the concepts of Christianity really aren't that complicated, are they? We can learn to parrot what has been said when the Word of God is preached or when somebody shares with us some form of Christianity. We can learn that. Truly acknowledging that truth is living it out. So while they're always gaining more information, it's really not affecting the way they live. We don't want to be in that company. We want to be people who apply the truths that God gives us. And then, notice as we go to the eighth verse. They lift themselves above God's revelation. These false teachers that cause others to go astray. They find the vulnerable, and then they lift themselves above God's revelation. Look at verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth. Men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. Now, who in the world are Janus and Jambres? You will look in vain in your Bible to find Janus and Jambres. But what we do find is this. In Jewish tradition, Janus and Jambres were the two magicians that opposed Moses. When Moses turned his staff into a serpent, remember, there were those who used the dark arts that turned their staffs into serpents. And that's who Janus and Jambres were, according to this tradition in the Jewish, what would you call it, <laughs> mindset. 
Okay, now, here's the point. Janus and Jambres were two people that counterfeited what God did. Their miracles were in no way by the power of God. They appeared to be every bit as powerful as what God was doing, but there were certainly limitations, right? Could they stop the ten plagues that God brought on Egypt? No. They could ape some of them. Once God did them, they could give the appearance of having done a couple of them. But as far as the scope and the strength of what was done, not even close. And you know, I think this talks to us again about the idea that we find with false teachers. They're counterfeiters. They're people who will come in and appear to be spiritual. But there's no real substance in who they are or what they teach. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, the names Janus and Jambres. Janus means he who seduces. Jambres is a name that means he who makes rebellion. Very descriptive of what false teachers do as they come into the church. They seduce others into rebelling against God's truth. And so God warns us about this, that there are people who will use these tactics to come in, but they're people of depraved minds, meaning that these are people who will come into the church and they're corrupt in their thinking. They take that which is straight and they pervert it and they twist it. And here's the thing. When a false teacher corrupts God's truth, they leave enough of the truth in to appear believable, but they distort it enough to where it's a lie. And that's why we have to be careful about Jonas and Jambres. They appear to have something. They appear to have substance. But there's always that ulterior motive behind it. And they always draw people in and cause harm. I want you to look at the last part of this, verse 9. They lose credibility eventually. What we find is this. The false teachers that come up and they're the flavor of the month or the year or the decade, you know what happens? People eventually see what they're about and they say, you know what, this is hooey and they turn away from it. And think throughout the history of the church, the many false teachings that people eventually look at and say, why did anybody follow that? That's crazy. They show themselves for what they are. And this can give us confidence. You see, what we need to understand is this. God's truth wins out. God's truth and the light of that truth will eventually reveal error. So if you want to stay away from error, stay in the Word of God. And hold everything up to the light of its truth. And make your decisions about what is true and what is not on the basis of what God's Word says. This morning we've seen that terrible times will come in the last times. We're in the last times, and we see that this is true. But this truth is because of the heart of man. 
because of the sinful outlook of man. And as believers, once again, rather than looking out and saying, yeah, people are really terrible, I think this passage is given that we might look at ourselves as well and say, do I put into practice any of these things? If God has spoken to your heart on one of the things that were mentioned, or several of them, confess them. Confess them to God and ask Him to transform your life that you might no longer live in that way. In so doing, you lead holy lives. And that's what we should all see. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the text.